This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang. We've reached 50 Farms Food Future episodes. We are truly fabulous at 50. Both of us are dressed in gold today as it's our golden anniversary. So to celebrate this month, we'll be featuring some of our favourite Farms Food Futures, golden oldies, you might say. And our climate expert, Jahan Zeb Chowdhury, will also be here to tell us all about what IFAD's doing at the UN's all-important climate summit, COP28, in Dubai, and its expected outcomes. We'll also bring you the latest report on the Innovative Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture program. This is IFAD's star program dedicated to addressing the pressing challenges faced by small-scale farmers. In the face of climate change, smallholder farmers are on the front line of climate change, battling rising temperatures, erratic rainfall and extreme weather events in some of the world's most vulnerable landscapes. ASAP empowers them to thrive in this changing climate. We'll be hearing from EFAD's climate experts Hisham Zaini and Flavia Perizzini. And next up, we'll be delving right into projects that have not only weathered these challenges, but also thrived, delivering successful results that make a real impact on the ground. Stay tuned, because the journey towards a more resilient tomorrow begins here. First, we'll be visiting Nepal to speak to Roshan Cook about the country's journey towards climate-resilient agriculture. And Philippe Remy will be joining us again on episode 50 to tell us about how climate-smart agriculture is mainstreamed in IFAD projects. You can also check out Philippe in episode 49. We talk to him about gender-transformative approaches and closing the gender gap in rural households. Back with our fab at 50, we speak to Klaus Reiner about the first-ever EFAT-funded project in the heart of Brazil's Amazon region, the Amazon Sustainable Management Project for the Marano Forest. And to wrap up this episode, we take a trip back in time to revisit some of our most inspiring moments on Farms Food Future. And don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at efat.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please don't forget to rate us. Coming up, Jahan Zeb Chowdhury tells us what's in store for COP28 in Dubai. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. From the 30th of November to the 12th of December, the 28th session of the Conference of the Parties, COP28, will take place in Dubai. Global leaders are uniting to confront pressing climate challenges. During this crucial event, IFAD's leading the way in supporting small-scale farmers and vulnerable communities highlighting the role of climate resilience. To kick off our fabulous episode 50, we have IFAD's Jahan Zeb Chowdhury, Lead Technical Specialist for Environment and Climate Clustered Coordinator. Our reporter, Rosa Gonzalez, spoke to Jahan about the initiatives IFAD is showcasing at COP28 to address climate change and promote sustainable agriculture. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us today to talk about COP28. So what specific initiatives or projects is IFAD showcasing at COP28 to address climate change and promote sustainable agriculture? I would say that there are three different initiatives that we are going to be focusing on. First focus is going to be on food system. If we go with business as usual by 2050, we expect that their cereal production is going to go down by 25 to 30 percent. And that may trigger malnutrition. And on annual basis, it's going to cost approximately 940 billion U.S. dollars. Now, that is what's happening when it comes to the overall demand side. 
when it comes to the supply side, the supply is, needs to improve because the demand is going to go up quite significantly. By 2050, we expect the demand for food would grow by 70%. So we are in a situation where the demand is not necessarily matching the supply, and that creates a lot of imbalance. Essentially, it means that we are going to be looking into the policy dimension of what is the enabling framework for us to make sure that we have a programmatic approach through which not only we are dealing with the production side, but we are dealing with the entire supply chain. Now, related to that, finance is also super important. You can create an enabling policy framework, but at the end of the day, it is important for us to unlock the financing. The second priority is going to be essentially working with the private sector to unlock more climate financing, particularly focusing on adaptation. As you know, business cannot survive in a society that fails, and society would fail if you're not taking climate change seriously. Our focus is going to be showcasing some of our projects where we are trying to bring the private sector. One of the projects that we are going to be implementing in the near future focuses on Africa adaptation financing framework. And there, what we are essentially trying to do is work with the private sector, whereby our contribution in terms of loans, which will also be backed up by Green Climate Fund financing, would essentially leverage another one-is-to-one amount from the private sector bank that we are going to be working on. So with $90 million investment, we are expecting $180 million total investment because of the co-financing that would come from the private sector. So what are we going to do with this? Uh, we are going to be providing on-lending support through the private sector. So that can eventually reach our smallholder farmers. But also there would be a possibility of direct investment, whereby we are going to be focusing primarily on SMEs that look into rural agriculture. But it also has got an interesting policy and innovation dimension. So it's not about the financing. For the financing to work, we need to innovate in terms of awareness, building the capacity, in terms of the technical assistance. And it is the marriage between the innovation dimension and the finance dimension, working with the private sector, that makes it very exciting. Third, I would say we are going to be also focusing heavily on our replenishment objectives. So we have three replenishment objectives under IFAD 13. We are focusing on fragility. We are focusing on climate. But we're not only focusing on the climate. We are integrating climate with biodiversity. And finally, we are focusing on the private sector. So that integrated approach across these three thematic areas is something that we also want to highlight more on. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us about IFAD's primary goals and expectations, particularly regarding the outcomes and impacts it hopes to achieve? I would say we have essentially three goals. The first goal is we want to demonstrate our value addition that we work with the smallholder farmers. And smallholder farmers, they are producing one third of the overall food that is being supplied, what we get on our table. One third of that is being produced by the smallholder farmers yet they are only receiving 1.7% of the total climate finance that is flowing. Mm -hmm. So our objective is to demonstrate that uh, IFAD does have the comparative advantages to work with the smallholder farmers with a people-centered approach and why IFAD should be the chosen partner to reach that last mile. Second, Globally, we also want to see much more focus on adaptation finance. There's a lot of tailwind behind mitigation finance, but we want to see the same kind of interest and same kind of push when it comes to adaptation and resilience finance, because I think it's only by investing in adaptation finance you can safeguard your mitigation finance from future disasters. And the third one, there's also a lot of movement when it comes to weather and information that you can provide to the smallholder farmers when it comes to changing weather patterns. So we have recently joined, for example, the financing mechanism for observatory stations. So we want to see that kind of approach coming out much more clearly. The world is prepared to tackle these issues. Mm -hmm. And how are you collaborating with other organizations and stakeholders to advance EFAD's mission? Well, the collaboration starts uh, with our joint pavilion, for example, at COP28, where we are going to be working 
with FAO, with WFP, as well as CGIR. So these are all Rome-based agencies, and I think that really shows how we are working together to make that collective impact happen. Uh, we are going to be showcasing uh, various different projects that we are implementing together. Our partners, both our national as well as international partners, we are going to bring examples of working in the field, and we are going to showcase those examples in a global platform, hoping that that will generate more excitement, interest, and also give the world more hope that solutions are out there. Thank you, Jahan. Next, we bring you EFAT's new adaptation for smallholder agriculture program report with Hisham Zaini and Flavia Perusini. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. Smallholder farmers reside in some of the world's most vulnerable landscapes and rely on delicate natural resources for their livelihoods. IFAD's Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture programme focuses on helping rural communities adapt to climate change. It's a grant-based initiative that has boosted the resilience of nearly 7 million smallholder farmers. It has covered more than 1 million hectares of land with climate-resilient practices and reduced carbon emissions by over 6 million tonnes. The programme's legacy goes far beyond its original projects, reshaping how IFAD tackles climate change. We're here all about it from IFAD's Hisham Zeni and Flavia Perizini. Welcome, Hisham and Flavia, and thank you for joining us on episode 50 to talk about IFAD's new ASAP report. So I would first like to ask you, Hisham, what are the main takeaways of the program completion review? All right, well... First, I just want to give a little bit of background on the report. It's the report on the Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture program, which was launched in 2012. It's produced by the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. The UK was a major donor of the ASAP program. They contributed £150 million back in 2012 and then managed to mobilise additional co-financing from other donors. This brought the program to a total of about $316 million and supported the implementation of about 44 projects in almost as many countries across the globe. The key findings from the report after about 10 years of implementation of these 44 projects are that actually the ASAP model, which is a grant-based model, provided a lot of benefits in terms of building resilience, climate resilience of smallholder farmers of more than 6.8 million farmers. It uh, brought more than 1 million hectares of land under climate resilient practices and also helped achieve co-benefits for climate mitigation, helping to sequester over 6 million tons of carbon or GHG emissions. In terms of additional findings, the review found that um, the program had many desirable characteristics of climate adaptation financing, such as co-design and co-implementation by governments and low transaction costs. And the main feature of the program being grant-based entailed that ASAP was able to test a lot of innovations that otherwise governments would not have borrowed for, and to bring these innovations to scale. And we've seen several examples of this where governments ended up seeing the success of the ASAP programs and their interventions and deciding to borrow subsequently to scale those interventions. Other donors have also scaled up those interventions and IFAD itself did so. And in fact, the program was also recognized by the UNFCCC back in 2013 as an innovative finance mechanism and received the award of Momentum for Change Lighthouse Award. Mm -hmm. And could you tell us how ASAP has transformed the way that IFAD addresses climate change? So ASAP was launched, uh, as I said, about a decade ago when there was very little knowledge about how to build the climate resilience and climate adaptation capacities of smallholder farmers. And there was very little financing going into this area. Climate continues to be mainstreamed across EFAD's operations, and we've been able to commit to targets of up to 40% of our core resources going into climate adaptation. Through the tools and approaches that we pioneered through ASAP, EFAD now conducts climate risk analysis for every single new investment. Through those tools, it also is able to categorize the climate risk of projects and ensure that uh, the appropriate risk mitigation measures are implemented. Thank you very much. And Flavia, how has ASAP increased resilience in the countries in which investments are financed? 
Thank you very much. So like Hisham was explaining, the ASAP program overall has had an impact on about 38 million farmers. And these are the farmers that, according to the assessments that are carried out after completion of projects, have increased greater resilience to climate change thanks to the program. IFAD has had a transformational impact at a macro and micro level. We can say that at the macro level, the change we have seen is through the national level policy changes. So IFAD works a lot with governments, through governments, and we have seen that one of the keys to success of a project is to increase and ensure government ownership of the project and influencing policies at national level is a key aspect of this because it uh, allows for systematic integration of the concept of climate adaptation and mitigation within national strategies, in particular in the agriculture sector. So, for example, in Sudan, our project improved livelihoods and drought resilience through policy institution building. And IFAD was a key partner in uh, promoting this change. And thanks to the work that took place on the ground, the success of the project had a huge impact in participatory approaches to natural resource governance and allowed for empowerment of communities, promoting sustainable natural resources management practices, improving the practices of water conservation, conservation of rangeland and forest. And thanks to all the lessons learned and to the work that IFAD and the program management unit on the ground took through this project, the government developed a natural resources governance framework, which is now leading and guiding new approaches and integration of natural resources management practices in the country. Similarly, in Tajikistan, thanks to the LPDP2 project that ASAP invested in, there has been an update on the pasture law in 2019. This was thanks to a dual focus on legislation and capacity building for community pasture management. And this allowed for a more planned and enhanced practices of grazing and improved the fodder crop production and pasture conditions on the ground. And could you share with us some of the successful practices and technologies that ASAP has promoted? Of course. So I would say that in this case, uh, we can look a bit more at the micro impacts that ASAP has had on the ground. And this is seen basically on the field where we see what farmers are doing, how they are approaching the challenges of climate change and how they're managing risks within their farms. So, for example, in Bolivia, we have a project called Accessos, which would be the economic inclusion program for families and rural communities. So in Bolivia, we pioneered this approach called Mapas Parlantes, in English that would be translated into talking maps. And these are instruments that help carrying out participatory diagnosis, planning processes and description of content and complex processes on the ground, which are being visualized in forms of symbols and images. And the method allows for the participation and inclusion of also illiterate people, allowing them to pursue a community-based approach to strengthening capacity and managing climate risk. This also allows for farmers to have visualized and have a thorough and integral understanding of how climate change is in fact impacting their own farms and not just as a generic concept. It uh, created a positive example which was scaled up nationally through 16 municipal councils and it's now an approach and tool that is being used by several communities to manage risk and understand the impacts of climate change in their farms. Similarly, in Kenya, we invest in a project called the Kenya Serial Enhancement Program, the KSEP Kral. Another example of technology we use here are promoting on the ground is, for example, the cone garden. These are highly productive kitchen gardens. And the reason why they're so efficient is because they allow for a very high concentration of nutrients and losses are minimal. So even the use of water is very efficient and it doesn't require too much looking after in the sense that uh, given the very limited uh, access to water that communities have, especially in the arid and semi-arid lands of Kenya, this is a very successful tool that allows for crop diversification and the production of an array of vegetables like spinach, cowpeas and carrots and uh, once they're fenced they are very easy to manage and require as I mentioned minimal gardening time after planting. And this has shown a very successful rate of adoption in the ground. Maybe the key barrier of access would be the cost of this cone garden, which in US dollars would be about six US dollars. But of course, not for everyone is a very accessible technology. But we're trying to promote that because it's really showing positive results in the long run. Thanks.
Thanks to Hisham and Flavia for joining us in the studio. Coming up, we'll be talking to Ifad's Russian cook about the Asha project in Nepal. This is Farm's Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson and I'm joined by Michelle Tang. The Adaptation for Smallholders in Hilly Areas project, or ASHA project, has been a game-changer for smallholders in Nepal. Developed by the Ministry of Forestry and Environment, it supports nearly 100,000 households, making it one of Nepal's most successful initiatives. With climate change causing shifts in agroecological zones and erratic rainfall patterns in Nepal, Roshan Cook and his team have introduced a range of innovative techniques. They've engaged local communities, established permaculture model farms, promoted agroforestry, and introduced bio-inputs to enhance soil fertility. Our reporter Rosa Gonzalez asked Roshan about these techniques and how they're dealing with climate change impacts in Nepal's hilly regions. We're seeing a number of different direct climate-related impacts, namely the increase in temperature. And with that, we're seeing the shifting of agroecological zones altitudinally, meaning it's moving upwards. The other main challenge is around the erratic rainfall patterns. The usual patterns have been completely disrupted. And as a result, we're seeing increased water scarcity and drought. And conversely, during the rainy seasons, we're seeing more intense rainfalls. And as a result, we're seeing flooding and large-scale water runoff. Another major impact is what is known as the GLOFs, the glacial lake outburst floods. We're seeing a more rapid melting of glaciers. And as a result, in the high hill areas, we're seeing formation of lakes. And at times, then you have the breaching of those walls and then major floods affecting downstream communities. With that, we're seeing increased landslides, increased forest fires, pest and disease incidences, and loss of biodiversity because of the shifting agroecological zones altitudinally. The way we approached it was, first and foremost, to have a participatory process with local communities in developing what was known as the Local Adaptation Plans of Action, the LAPAs. This was a very rigorous consultative process, identifying what are the local level climate impacts, and then based on that, defining what are the approaches and technologies for addressing these challenges. We came up with two main streams. One was to capacitate the farmers to understand what the current climate change impacts are and what are the anticipated future scenarios, and then how the smallholder farmers should begin to prepare for addressing these anticipated challenges. And the other part was what we would call the hard approach, which is more you know, infrastructure and land management-based approaches. Now, if I go into the actual interventions that then were implemented out of these LAPAs, we wanted to look at this from an agroecological systems approach. And so what we did was we established permaculture model farms. Permaculture meaning the combination of the word permanent and agriculture scrunched up together as permaculture. This was an innovation that Bill Mollison from New Zealand contributed to. So we set up these permaculture model farms as a way to look at how do you manage a farm using an agroecological systems approach rather than doing kind of individual intervention. Over 1,200 farmers were trained, 84% of them were women, and many of them adopted various aspects of this approach and technique. And how are you incorporating this agroecological systems approach? How does it build on the climate smart agriculture work you've done already in Nepal? So with regard specifically to water scarcity and drought, we promoted a number of local indigenous seed varieties that were much more resilient to these climate shocks and also established seed banks. We looked at, you know, how to increase the soil's capacity to retain moisture. So introduced mulching, biochar, and just basically increasing the organic content of the soil for better soil moisture retention. In addition to that, we introduced multi-cropping and mixed cropping as a way of diversifying the farm cropping system and having rotations so that you can better manage for pests and also improve soil fertility using this what we call companion planting. And then for the more kind of landscape level, we promoted agroforestry and also afforestation and reforestation in the area as adjacent to these communities to better leverage, let's say, the ecological systems for uh, improved hydrogeologic functioning and soil fertility management. 
For integrated pest management, this is a major challenge for any farming community, but particularly so in Nepal. What we introduced was what is known as Jolmol, and this is an organic mix of local herbs and different allopathic vegetative material that helps mitigate the damage from pests and diseases. We provided three containers. The first container is biofertilizer, so that's really for soil fertility improvement. The second is for biofungicides, and the third is for biopesticides. This has been taken up quite broadly by the farmers and is proving to be extremely effective. In addition to that, we supported the improvement of livestock shed management and the promotion of stall feeding as a way of minimizing pests and diseases with the livestock. And of course, companion planting, where you introduce a number of different vegetative species that reduce pests and diseases and also attract pollinators and boost growth. With regard to landslides, we supported the farmers with land terracing on farm, also for establishing what we call contour hedgerows for soil conservation. These are vegetative material with deep roots that are planted along the contour and that minimize soil erosion from these excessive rainfall incidences. With regard to biodiversity loss, this is a major issue. There are a lot of invasive species that have taken over areas. For example, there is a plant called uh, Lantana camera, uh, which is a highly invasive species. And the communities started using that plant for producing biochar. Biochar meaning basically charcoal, which helps retain the soil microbial populations and also increases uh, soil moisture uh, retention. So what would you say is the impact that these measures have had in terms of benefits, yields and returns for farmers in the project area? First of all, the increased knowledge amongst the farmers of what they're experiencing currently gives them a much better way to deal with these changes. So this is, I think, a very important point uh, in terms of the capacity building that has been done under the ASHA program. In terms of the direct benefits, so the ASHA project supported more than 90,000 households, of which almost 50% of them were female-headed households. Under the project, 34,197 hectares of land was brought under climate-resilient practices. In terms of increased water availability, over 40,000 households benefited from that. And that, of course, led to increased you know, production. Around 177 Gali landslide control and Gabian works were implemented, supporting around 6,000 households. And many of those households were under threat of being washed away. We did a calculation in monetary terms. This actually amounted to about $9.8 million of saved resources. What we've seen is that paddy increased by 14%, wheat by 11%, maize by 11%, vegetables by 33%, goats by 43%, and milk production by 29%. When we did the financial analysis, what it turned out was that each household was earning an increment of around 50,000 Nepali rupees annually. Now, this is a significant increase in their income generation. So what we've been able to demonstrate is that you can adopt these climate-resilient approaches without losing productivity. In fact, that you can actually increase this productivity and as a result, increase your income stream. Climate-resilient farming can be extremely economically lucrative. We'll be back with Rashan to hear about building on the climate-smart agriculture work in Nepal with the Resilient High-Value Agriculture Program. And now we talk to Philip Remy about how climate resilient solutions are being mainstreamed. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson and I'm joined by Michelle Tang. The Merit Project in Mali, that stands for Multi Energy for Resilience and Integrated Territorial Management Project, is all about making farming more resilient to climate change. They're helping family farmers, especially women and young people, by providing them with cleaner energy sources. Joining us now is Ifaz Philippe Remy. We'll be talking to him about this ASAP-funded program. It is part of the PAPAM initiative that aims to foster agricultural productivity, especially in areas with high rates of poverty and food security. Philippe spoke to our reporter Rosa Gonzalez, about the farming techniques employed in Mali and why it is vital to incorporate 
climate adaptation practices into projects like this. In any project, we have to reach a threshold of activities related directly to climate adaptation. So in my case, actually, I implemented one adaptation project in Mali. What we decided to do was to develop biodigester. And the biodigesters, they are this type of tank where you put the dung from animals and there is a fermentation and this fermentation provides gas, which is methane. It can be used for cooking. So people, instead of cutting wood and using firewood, they use the gas. So it was a good way of adding to the project this component on biodigesters. So this was done, actually, and it was quite successful. It was done at the household level. Each household that had, I don't know, at least six, uh, six cows could do it, and they could benefit from it. They were participating in building the biodigester themselves, and the project was providing the bricks, was providing the people to build the biodigester and so on. So actually, the cost was not so, so high, eh, because it was a cost of around $500, so it's not, it's not very costly. So we could uh, develop uh, close to 100 uh, biodigesters. I mean, it was, they were tested, and it was effective for many reasons. It was effective for gas, of course, because the women could use the gas for cooking. Then it was also more comfortable for them because instead of having all the smoke in the room because of the fire, the gas doesn't produce the smoke. So for diseases, eye diseases, frog diseases, all this type of health problem were diminished. But actually, we discovered that also with the biodigester, uh, you can take the dung you have put in the biodigester and use it as a fertilizer. And this was very, very interesting because this is a very good fertilizer. And uh, in Mali, where we were working, the soil are very depleted. Fertility is low. So actually, it was a very good way of concentrating fertility and then using it in the field. This became actually even more important than the gas at one point because everybody in the family wanted to get this, what we call biodigester, this biodigester to use in their feed. The women wanted it to use in their garden, you know, to produce vegetables for the family. And the men, they wanted to take it for their cotton fields. So actually there was a sort of discussion among the families to know where to use this dung. And often the men were saying, but this is our and the women said, but yes, but we would like to have a bit of it for our garden. So actually, there was a good discussion. Seeing the success of Biodigester, we decided to upscale the project. And then now there is a new project, which is called Merit, a project which is much bigger. And the objective of the project is to upscale and to develop the Biodigester in a in larger dimension. And of course, looking at the gender transformative approach, at that time, I didn't know this approach, but actually, I think it would be very helpful to use it in this case, because actually, around the biodigester, there is a discussion. If you can organize a discussion among the household members, particularly the men and the women, to discuss how to use the biodigester, who is going to collect the dung, who is going to use the gas, because even for the gas, you know, the women use it for cooking, but the men use it for lighting. So there was a sort of discussion among them also for that. So, I mean, the GALS approach, I think, would be very, very useful to accompany the household and to use the biodigester better in the future. So I think it would be a very, very powerful to, to use the GALS approach in, uh, in, this, uh, in this project also. Thank you to Philippe and to our reporter, Rosa. Don't forget to tune in to episode 49 of this podcast to learn all about the Gender Action Learning System, also known as GALS, with Ifad's Philippe Remy. Next up, we're back with Roshan. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang and I'm joined by Brian Thompson. We're back with Roshan Cook to continue our conversation about advancing climate-smart agriculture efforts in Nepal. In this part, Roshan tells us about the Resilient High-Value Agriculture Program, or RHVAP, the successor to ASHA. This program focuses on merging commercial and climate-resilient agriculture, building on IFA's extensive four-decade experience in Nepal. Let's hear all about it. 
The new project that we're designing currently is called the Resilient High Value Agriculture Program, the RHVAP. Now, what we're doing in RHVAP is we're bringing the two different streams, the commercial agricultural stream together with the climate resilient stream under one umbrella. It's going to be an eight-year-long program, given that we're trying to facilitate the transition to agroecological, or let's say commercially viable agroecological farming. And it's going to be in three provinces, uh, Lumbini, Karnali, and Sudarpashim, which are the far western provinces in Nepal. We're basically leveraging the knowledge gained from the last 40 years of IFAD's work in Nepal and bringing these different streams together. First of all, we're going to be working with the local communities in developing what we're calling agroecological cluster plans, which will help look at the agroecological zone that those communities are in and what is most suitable for production in those agroecological zones, but also looking at climate impacts and seeing what needs to be done to build those resilient agroecological systems. What we have realized is that there is a major shortfall of bio-inputs to support an agroecological system. So as a result, what we're doing is we are creating an ecosystem of micro, small and medium enterprises for the production of these bio-inputs. That will include things like vermicompost, biopesticides, biofungicides, biochar, nurseries for production of companion plants and so on. Similarly, what we have realized is that the post-harvest processing is a major challenge here in Nepal. Most of the processing centers are quite a considerable distance from the actual production zones. And what we're seeing is that there's large-scale food loss and waste because of that. So we want to change this and we want to bring this ecosystem of MSNEs into the agroecological clusters themselves. And that way we can build better relationships between producers of these bio inputs and the post-harvest processing with the smallholder farmers and have them enter into more long-term mutually beneficial relationships. And this way we avoid the major problem of food loss and waste. There's a number of infrastructure supports that we will be providing the smallholder farmers, mainly on irrigation because water is one of the major limiting factors. And also we are going to be building a large wholesale, a regional wholesale market in Lumbini. And this wholesale market is just 20 minutes away from an international airport, the Gautam Buddha International Airport. And that helps open up the possibility of exporting many of the high value commodities that we are looking at, which have a very high value in the export markets. Recently, we spoke in episode 46 of this podcast to one of the gurus of agroecology, Miguel Altieri. How do you define agroecology? So I listened to uh, Miguel Altieri's uh, podcast, and uh, I mean, I, there, I, I don't have any disagreement with the way he frames uh, agroecology. I think he has a very broad approach to this, uh, not only looking at just merely the farm level, but he's looking at it from a much broader scale of food systems, and thereby he brings in the social, the cultural, and the economic and political aspects of, you know, agroecology. Now, from our side, we are approaching this from a, a more limited perspective. We cannot deal with, the, you know, larger issues around the politics and social and cultural. What we are doing is we are really looking at, you know, what are the entry points that will help move the process in the right direction. And that's why we are taking this more pragmatic approach of looking at what are the challenges associated with actually institutionalizing an agroecological farming systems approach at the farm level, but also bringing in the local administration, the provincial administration and the federal levels into that process and then facilitating that change. We're also looking at using ecological processes for stimulating agricultural production, thereby improving the landscape. If you have a large contiguous area of smallholders practicing agroecological farming, we will see landscape level changes, improved hydrogeologic functioning, soil fertility management, pollination, and so on and so forth, biodiversity increase. So fundamentally, I think we don't disagree <laughs> in terms of, you know, what Miguel is articulating. I think it's a very important perspective that he has brought, and he's been one of the leaders of this movement. So we take his words very seriously, as they are extremely wise and, and knowledgeable. Thanks, Roshan. Next up, we'll be visiting the first ever IFAD-funded project in the heart of Brazil's Amazon forest. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. 
from indigenous communities to smallholder farmers. The Amazon Sustainable Management Project in Morano, Brazil, is dedicated to safeguarding the Amazonian rainforest. It works towards sustainable resource management and community prosperity, thereby addressing the deep-rooted environmental degradation threatening the region. Joining us on episode 50, did we mention it's our 50th anniversary episode at any point? I think we did. Anyway, joining us on episode 50 to tell us about this project is IFAD's Klaus Reiner. Our reporter, Rosa Gonzalez, asked Klaus to tell us about the key strategies that they're implementing to benefit the rural populations. Thanks for, for the interview. I really like the fact that we've got support from ASAP for this project because it really shows how much we are progressing in adaptation and mitigation efforts in Brazil overall, and particularly for our first project in the Brazilian Amazon region. So the, the Amazon Sustainable Management Project, also called PAGES, is a, is a project in the western part of Maranhão, which is the Amazon region, which is already very badly depleted. Um, there's something like 80% of the original forest there is already lost, and the forest that is still remaining is in the indigenous areas. So the project is focusing on the indigenous areas in the Maranhão Amazon, and there we can transfer the technologies that we're already using successfully in Brazil of living and making a living with the natural environment and building on fertility and, and on natural growth while making a living from the forest there. So this is the overall purpose of the project and we are grateful for having the funding which comes from Germany as supplementary funds to EFAT and is then provided to Brazil as Asset Plus funding. Could you tell us about the key strategies and initiatives you'll be implementing to benefit the rural populations in Maranhão's Amazon forest? Yes, so the project will be working with the overall population in the area, not only with the indigenous population. There is also a lot of regular smallholder farming and also Quilombola, which is the Afro-descendant population. And we will be working with them to strengthen their capacities to build up the degraded areas to protect the areas that are still standing and also to make sure that value chains which are already existing in the areas such as Asai and Coco Babasu will be strengthened and will be able to generate income for them without deforesting any further. And in what ways will the project contribute to reducing greenhouse gas emissions as well as address illegal logging and land clearing in the area? Yeah, the greenhouse gas emissions mainly stem from land use changes. So it's really the conversion of forest into pasture and agricultural land. And this is even happening in the indigenous lands by non-indigenous people. Um, there are a lot of incursions into indigenous territories and also outside the indigenous lands, there is potential for building up agroforestry systems. So the project will be working with the restoration of forests and also with the prevention of further deforestation to make sure that the greenhouse gas emission is greatly reduced and that there is even mitigation in, in the sense of greenhouse gas sequestration in the tune of 6 million tons of CO2 equivalent in the project. When I visited indigenous community in Alto Tiruasu, I was very impressed by the way in which the indigenous communities there are already organized and are strengthened to create their own institutions for protecting their forest, moving villages to the borders of the indigenous lands to stop incursions and also having forest fire brigade to respond to possible forest fires which may occur as has happened also a few days ago in their area. Thank you, Klaus. And finally, what will we see moving forward? We will build institutions, institutions uh, in of the state of Maranhão to respond to the challenges in the forest areas, mainly the forest incursions, also forest fires, and support the transformation of degraded lands. So the institutions that are also at the community level need to be strengthened the indigenous community of the Kapoor, which I visited, is particularly organized already. Others are much less organized and all need a lot of strengthening and capacity building and also some investment in order to make their efforts to protect the forest and to use it sustainably much more efficient. There is, of course, also the environmental measurements 
which will be looking at remote sensing of the forest cover in the area so that we can really see whether the project is having an effect on the protection of standing forest and also on the conversion or restoration of degraded lands. Thank you, Klaus. Make sure you also check out our other podcasts. In podcast 47, we explored ways to get young people engaged in agriculture. Then in podcast 48, we talked about all forms of malnutrition and brought to you a fascinating report on obesity in developing countries. And in podcast 49, we celebrated rural women and women leaders in agriculture for the International Day of Rural Women on October 15th. Coming up, we have our last podcast for 2023. We'll be greeting the new year in episode 51 by giving you all the details on what organisations fighting climate change are planning on doing. Tune in next month to see what's in store for 2024. Now we bring you some of our favourite Farms Food Future interviews of all times to celebrate our 50th episode anniversary because we truly are fabulous at 50. Back in episode 9, we tackled the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on rural youth. The Outer Islands Food and Water Project links nutrition and employment re-engaging the young people of Pacific Island Kiribati with agriculture. Our reporter Julia Gumeres spoke with Danieta Apisai about the challenges faced in Kiribati and how the government invested in locally sourced food production to depend less on imports. Well, agriculture, agriculture is really an activity that's not very easy in Kiribati. The soil is just not good for agriculture. We have very poor soil. We have um, limited freshwater supply. We yeah, those kind of things. But in the past, people had no choice. They, in order to survive, they have to live off the land. Now, when we started imported, importing food like from overseas, the people started to realize that you know importing food means. They don't need to work so hard in agriculture. Like, for example, one of the traditional staple foods was the giant swamp taro. To do that, you had to dig like a pit so many feet into the ground just to get to the freshwater lands. And then you needed like, you know, to, to ensure that when the salt water, the salt water intrusion, what do you do to, to ensure that your, your taro survives? You know, so it, it was really hard work uh, doing agriculture. So I think that's the main thing that, that has made farming so unpopular in Kiribati. And so you mentioned the, the relationship between ikiribas and breadfruit and taro, which are indigenous foods products. This relationship has changed, right? So what do you think are the effects of this trend on local youth in regards to nutrition and also employment? Well, on the local youth, in, in, in relation to nutrition, definitely we can see that our local youth, their preference now is for imported food, right, over our local food. So the trend on the, the nutrition is that we, can, we know that they're not getting the proper nutrition they need. Because if you compare uh, rice uh, compared to breadfruit or even taro, uh, you don't get the nutrition from the rice that you would get from the, the, the taro or, or the breadfruit. So we know for sure that our local youth are, are, not, are not getting the nutrition that they require or that they need. Uh, when we look at it this way, that they're not getting the nutrition, then in terms of the employment, um, it means that they're not getting the opportunity uh, that they would be able to get if they're well-nourished and, and are able to like perform well in, in, in whatever areas they need to perform in order to get employment. Next, we revisit episode 27 to hear from Kerry West about her fruit salad trees in Australia. Through grafting, Kerry West grows trees with up to six different fruits, including stone fruit, citrus, and multi-apple trees. 
our reporter, Miguel Terran, talked to her about how this innovation could benefit smallholder farmers. Well, we were on a farm out of Sydney. We moved to a farm, my husband and I, and he'd had a bit of a background in farming and we wanted to get out of the city and really it was a question of poverty. Um, Necessity was the mother of invention here and we couldn't afford to buy our own fruit trees. And my husband always learnt things out of a book. So a book was given to him about grafting and he experimented on a tree in the farm that we just purchased and um, it was a plum tree and he grafted 30 different kinds of stone fruit and out of the 30 he grafted, 29 was successful. And so that became our fruit salad tree. The the name fruit salad tree just plopped into our head. That's what it was. Could you tell us about the type of customers you have? Are they individuals, small-scale farmers or larger landowners? Well, they vary. Um, Sometimes it's mostly the uh, person that hasn't got a lot of space for fruit trees. Some farmers scale down and then they want to go onto a smaller property and um, they're used to having single fruit trees and they'll buy our trees with two or three fruits on them. So we're supplying trees to people that there's just two in the household So they might decide to have a tree with five different fruits on it or four different fruits because they don't want a big quantity of any of the one kind of fruit and they want it to pick it over a period of time. They can grow them in pots too and keep them smaller in courtyards. But commercial orchardists, we don't suit their production because all the fruits can't be harvested at the same time. Usually they send their tractors down the rows of their trees and they pick that particular orange because it's ready now and there's rows and rows of it. So they pick it all at the same time, whereas our tree, just one side of it might be ready now and the other side might be ready in two months' time. So it's not practical for commercial use in those terms. Would fruit salad trees have any application for small-scale farmers in developing countries? Yes, in developing countries, yeah, grafting is a fantastic technique and it can be adapted to lots of um, plant life. Um, so it, all countries can use it. And um, we've developed a technique over the years that streamlines it for us. Um, there's a special care point that I'd like to mention. You've got to keep making sure that as the tree's young and developing and growing up, that it's not not got too much fruit on it, take some of them off so the branch work grows rather than the fruit. Keep that balancing going until the tree reaches its maximum height. So keep that balance happening so that one doesn't dominate. Because otherwise, if one's allowed to dominate, then it'll start taking energy away from the other two. Keep that balance happening and uh, look at it regularly and then treat it like any other fruit tree, sun, food, fertilising, um, good drainage, all that applies to any fruit trees. It's, it's uh, just like looking after one tree, but you've got multiple fruits growing on one tree. Moving on to another one of our favourites. Back in episode 29, we explore the culinary philosophy of nature and nurture with famous Korean chef Ji Young Kwan. As a Buddhist nun, Ji Young Kwan has incorporated her lifestyle principles into sustainable and vegan recipes and recognizes farming as essential for achieving the desired flavors. Our reporter Doyan Han met her in South Korea to talk about the vital role of sustainable food systems in environmental conservation and the impact of farming. Farming is getting to know the ingredients. With farming, we can realize how the climate and the universe change, how my life works, and how both my life and nature are deeply related. Farming means that you are with the things that form you. Therefore, cooking with ingredients from them is to share the growth process of nature as I have gone through. Farming and cooking always go together with nature. Usually, farmers' minds are always focused on the farming cycle. 
They share their energy with the crops and are always worried if the crops will be stepped on, seeds will ripen early, be torn by the winds, or etc. Therefore, when you cultivate massively with machines, it is necessary to consider the loss of energy that we share with the crops. This is why I recommend growing foods such as peppers or eggplants at home rather than growing flowers. Only when you realize how farming is done, you will know the hard work of farmers, the importance of climate and nature, and how important my attitude towards food is. I wish people to grow and cook foods that give this enlightenment to other people. Have you noticed any changes in the environment as a result of the climate change which affects the ingredients you grow or cook with? It should rain or snow when it has to, and sunlight when we need it. But the climate seems to be somewhat angry these days, and this is the result what we have caused. We need to realize this. When I get sick, the whole world gets sick. And when the climate and nature get sick, I get sick. We are also beasts who rely entirely on nature. Recently, I headed down to my farm to harvest cabbages for kimchi, but none of them were able to eat. I've never seen a cabbage in so much by box. Not only me, but also nationwide, this problem has led to a significant increase in cabbage prices this year. Small changes in nature have a great influence on humans. Within these changes, what efforts should we put into practice for future generations and sustainable food systems? Do not eat unfairly processed food. You should eat something that has died naturally. To reduce carbon emissions, we should minimize raising livestock excessively and unethically for human convenience. Also, we should reject using chemical fertilizers, which may cause waterway pollution and degradation of soil health. If you start growing foods by yourself, you can share your energy with food entirely and see the world more clearly. Your clear spirit belongs to the universe and becomes one with nature. To do so, individuals around the world should change first. Every consumer and farmer should reverse their thoughts and consider not only each other's position, but also nature's words. People are too lazy to consider climate change and proper farming. Due to excessive dependence on machines, they have no idea how the natural environment circulates and at what temperature the seeds sprout. Farmers should know science, politics, and economy to farm properly. This means those who do not farm should also know how to farm. And now, looking back at episode 32, we bring you a culinary perspective on edible insects with Chef Joseph Yoon. Chef Joseph Yoon works on integrating insects into Western diets to promote healthy living and a sustainable future for food. From cicadas to crickets, he's cooked with an extensive range of insects and found innovative ways to take the squeamishness out of the idea of eating insects. Our reporter Ian Smith talked to him about his cooking classes with insects and the benefit these insects have for both humans and the environment. But why shouldn't people eat bugs? People have an extreme reaction in the Anglo-Western world towards eating insects. The idea of eating insects is usually like sensationalized as fear factor, but we have been incredibly successful at integrating our work culturally where you see the Avengers and in the future, Tony Stark is talking to his child about eating crickets. And we're seeing more and more examples where people are not sensationalizing it or making it turn out to be like apocalyptic food, but very matter of fact. And the idea of being able to change that perception from insects as a pest that bites you, that might eat your plants, and that might carry like a disease, and to transform that perception to one of an edible insect, something that's sustainably farmed or harvested specifically for human consumption, that's processed at an FDA-approved facility, 
that's nutrient dense. I mean, that transformation is so fascinating to me. And to literally be involved right now at this very present moment where the world has collectively never spoken more about eating insects than today, right now. And what's really important for me and my organization at Brooklyn Bugs is that, yes, while our work is rooted in environmentalism and sustainability, we don't try to pound down on that rhetoric because people would get so turned off if like, we tried going like, let's save the world by eating bugs. People would be like, uh, we're not into bugs, and no, we don't want to save the world. We're not suggesting that eating insects is the end-all, be-all solution to, 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 to climate change, but it can be one of the things that we utilize and integrate into our lifestyles to mitigate climate change. And so the fact that we can be a part of this conversation and really help people to understand how it's even possible. The why is like clearly stated in the UN's FAO report in 2013, uh, edible insects, future prospects for food and feed security. And so we have a great deal of supporting evidence and peer-reviewed science papers and all this knowledge that supports the sustainability, the nutrition, and the livelihood, just the great potential that, that they're rearing and the practice of entomophagy or eating insects presents. And so what we like to do is help people overcome a certain fear of the unknown. Okay, so in terms of nutrition now, how do insects compare to cows, pigs, fish, other traditional livestock? So insects are packed with macronutrients, which means that they're high in protein, they're low in fat and carbs. So right off the bat, we're looking at, oh, okay, that, that sounds like a really smart protein source. And what does that mean? It means that for their body weight, they are just packed with nutrients. On average, they might, they're bought by body weight, they, they might be 60 to 80% protein, and that eclipses all the traditional livestock. And finally, freshly picked from episode 40, let's hear Myrna Cunningham's inspiring story as she battles to protect her community that lies between Honduras and Nicaragua. Myrna Cunningham is a Nicaraguan indigenous leader advocating for an autonomous region between Honduras and Nicaragua. She champions gender equality, education, and international human rights standards and is a member of IFAD's Indigenous Peoples Steering Committee. In episode 40, she spoke with our reporter, Alison Lecce, about the challenges Indigenous peoples still face today and what new generations can do to become activists. We are very appreciative of the changes that we have seen in the establishment of standards that recognizes collective rights of indigenous peoples. The increase of spaces of participation in the discussion of issues that regards indigenous peoples. But we, we are still aware that there are areas in the world, countries that do not recognize the existence of indigenous peoples. Or in some cases, they recognize that they exist. They adhere to the standards, but there's still a big gap between recognition and real implementation of the rights of indigenous peoples. How does it make you feel to see these youth indigenous leaders and activists fighting for the same rights you've been fighting for? When you, when you plant something during the youth, that is what you will be able to harvest in the rest of your life. We are harvesting, my generation is harvesting what we were able to do during our youth. And one of the main elements of indigenous people's resilience is the capacity 
of intergenerational transmission of knowledge. And when I see uh, the activism of the youth, it just make me ratify that practice of indigenous peoples. It makes me appreciate that we're still doing it. So my main message for the youth is continue listening to the elders. Continue remembering that what you are able to do now, the spaces that you have gained now, is because there are ancestors that were there building, opening those windows and those opportunities. So remember their lessons. Remember your commitment with their knowledge. Remember your commitment with their wisdom and their values. And be faithful to your people. You are not there only as an individual. You are there because you belong to peoples that have fought for decades, for centuries, to exercise their rights. And that brings us to the end of episode 50. Thanks, as always, to our producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti, to our reporters, Rosa Gonzalez, Chiara Rainsby, Julia Gumares, Miguel Turan, Duyon Han, Ian Smith, and Alison Lecce. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to episode 50 of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Join us next month as we bid farewell to this year and welcome a fresh start in the new year. We'll be hearing from dedicated organisations on the front lines of the battle against climate change about what's in store for 2024. Remember, we want to hear from you, what you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to. So please get in touch at podcasts at efad.org and send us your voice or text messages to this address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please rate us. We'll be back at the end of December with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Michelle Tang and the team here at EFAD. Thanks thanks for for listening. listening.